which is <clears throat> commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. And it is that last uh, section that we're going to be talking about uh, this week and next week, all actual transgressions which proceed from it. This answer identifies uh, two kinds of sin, original sin and actual sins. Uh, here in the catechism question it says actual transgressions. <clears throat> now original sin as we've discussed is that state into which all mankind has been brought through the first sin of Adam. And as the catechism says this includes the corruption of man's entire nature. Every descendant of Adam comes into this world in a state and condition of original sin. Now, actual sins are the fruit of original sin. They are the actions and thoughts which are the natural expression of a nature that has been corrupted by sin and that is willfully inclined away from righteousness and toward evil. The Puritan Thomas Vincent puts it succinctly, Actual sin is any breach of God's law, either of omission or commission, either in thought, heart, speech, or action. <clears throat> Throughout the history of the church, certain groups have minimized the idea of original sin, some outright denying it, such as Pelagians, Socinians, and modern liberal theologians. But without denying it altogether, Roman Catholic semi-Pelagians and Arminians minimize original sin and have developed doctrines and practices aimed at lessening its significance and seriousness, be it through infant baptism, which purportedly washes away the guilt of original sin, or with Arminians with some notion of prevenient grace, which is said to mitigate its power and effect in every person's life. The emphasis in these groups becomes altogether focused on actual sins. But without a biblical doctrine of original sin, their understanding of actual sins is weakened and compromised, and the plight of fallen man is poorly understood. The solidarity of all sins with Adam's first sin is essential to understanding ourselves and our sin properly. And Reformed theology has always given due recognition to original sin and to the relation in which it stands to actual sins. So we're going to talk uh, first here then about the relationship between original sin and actual sin. And again, as we've said, the former originated in a free act of Adam as the representative of the human race, a transgression of the law of God and a corruption of human nature that made Adam guilty before the bar of God's judgment and thus rendered him liable to punishment that God had warned of. And since Adam was the representative of the human race, in the sight of God, his sin 
was the sin of all his descendants so that all descendants are born as sinners in a state of guilt and corruption. Original sin is both a state and an inherent quality of pollution in man and this inner pollution or corruption is the unholy fountain of all actual sins. So when we speak of actual sin, the word actual is used in a comprehensive sense. Actual sins are not merely external actions, but it includes all conscious thoughts and volitions which spring from original sin. They are the individual sins of act in distinction from men's inherited nature and inclination. As Louis Burkhoff says, original sin is one, actual sins are manifold. So actual, actual sins may be internal or external. They can be a particular conscious doubt or evil thought or wicked scheme in the mind or a particular conscious lust or desire or greed or malice in the heart. Or they can be the outward acts of murder, adultery, theft, deceit, and others. And just as all people are under original sin and are thus guilty and corrupt, so also all are guilty of committing actual sins. And this, of course, is the consistent teaching of Scripture. Just to consider a few texts that make this point. Uh, if I can have somebody read these, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so these all declare um, the universality of sin, that, that all are actual sinners. And Jesus tells us that all actual sins have their origin in the sinful, corrupt heart of man. And we see this in Mark 7, 20 to 23. If I can have someone read that. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, they become the person. Thanks, Ryan. <clears throat> so here we see that both internal sins, evil thoughts, envy, pride, as well as external sins, sexual immorality, murder, slander, all of these actual sins, Jesus says, come from within, out of the heart. These sins and others are the fruit of the corruption of original sin. As I said, the existence of original sin is often denied or minimized, but the fact of actual sin is more widely accepted, even uh, to some extent by those who would deny that we have any reliable scriptural basis for defining such sin. So people have conceptions of actual sins, even if they're not biblically uh, grounded. And so we see man more and more defining for himself and for society 
what are the intolerable sins deserving of their contempt and indignation. And uh, these, of course, are far from the biblical standard. I think it goes without saying that our culture has, to an alarming extent, really lost the sense of the heinousness of sin as committed against the holy God. And what we have in its place really is the idea of sin merely as an infringement on the rights of one's fellow human beings. But where sin is seen as against man primarily rather than against God, we've lost the sense of its true sinfulness. And where sins are seen merely as separate individual acts unrelated to a corrupt nature shared by all humanity, which is inherited from our first parents, we fail to see the seriousness of our condition. Most people fail to see that sin is a fatal power in their lives which always and ever incites their rebellious spirits and which makes them guilty before God and which brings them under a sentence of condemnation. <clears throat> the solidarity of all sin with Adam's sin is essential not only to understand ourselves and our sin properly, but also to properly understand the solidarity of Christ's righteousness with our acts of righteousness as redeemed sinners. <clears throat> While our deeds are never perfect in themselves or worthy of praise, His work in us is... And any holy inclination or thought or act that is in us or done by us is the fruit of His Spirit working His will in our hearts, minds, and lives. We love because He first loved us and because He has poured His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So also we obey because He first obeyed for us and has now given us His Spirit to enable us to walk in righteousness and to put to death the works of the flesh. So fallen man is not simply like Adam in that he does what Adam did, namely sin. Sinful man shares in the nature of fallen Adam, and the sin that Adam imparted is the sin that bears fruit in his children. Likewise, we who are redeemed and justified in union with Christ don't merely act like Christ and do what he did. Rather, we are a new creation. We have a new nature. There is a power within us conforming us to Christ's nature and shaping us to be like him that we might share in His holiness, as it says in Hebrews 12.10. Now, it doesn't say there that we might produce a holiness like His, as if that were possible apart from Him producing His own holiness in us, but it actually says that we would share in His holiness. And so Paul tells us that we who are in Christ have put on the new self. 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And what qualities does that image have? He tells us in Ephesians 4.24, where he says that the new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what has begun, what he has begun in us, in our regeneration, and this is what he will perfect in us, in our glorification, when we will, as it says, share in his glory. That is what our union with Christ means for our righteousness. His true righteousness and holiness are being produced in us by the work of his Holy Spirit in us, even as Adam's sin was producing in us more and more sin. And as it continues to do in all of those who have not yet been set free by the Son. So the relationship between original sin and actual sin could be stated this way. Adam's actual sin brought all of his posterity under original sin, from which proceed all actual sins that have been committed by every man, woman, and child throughout history. So we see this continuity between original sin and actual sins. Actual sins are the consistent expression of the corrupted human nature of all who are under original sin. So now I want to spend some time talking about uh, classifications of actual sins. And when we talk about actual sins, the question is, how, how are we to think about them? Are they all of one type? Are they of the same degree of seriousness? How do we categorize them? Well, Louis Burkhoff says that, quote, it is quite impossible to give a unified and comprehensive classification of all sins, since they vary in kind and degree and can be differentiated from more than one point of view. But while we can't make one neat and comprehensive taxonomy of all possible sins, we can differentiate what the Bible says about various sins and understand the nature and characteristics of various states and thoughts and actions that the scriptures designate as actual sins. And that is what we're going to attempt to do here. Uh, but before we look at some particulars, I want to say first that certain efforts to classify sins are clearly unbiblical. For example, the Roman Catholic attempt to distinguish so-called mortal sins by which a person is said to lose justifying grace, uh, separating those from venial sins, fails to do justice to the very clear scriptural teaching that all sin is unrighteousness and deserves eternal punishment. At the same time, though, the Bible does distinguish different kinds of sins according to the different degrees of guilt that they incur and punishments attached to them. The Old Testament makes an important distinction between sins committed presumptuously or with a high hand and sins committed unwillingly as a result of ignorance or weakness or 
error. And we see this, for instance, in Numbers 15, 29 to 31, where it says, You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Presumptuous sins were treated much more severely than those committed in, ing- in ignorance. Excuse me. <clears throat> These sins required a person to be cut off from the people and separated from the means of atonement through the priestly ministry. Certain sins carried the sanction of death, while others required restitution of some sort. But we need to remember that these were all civil sanctions in the uh, kingdom of Israel, and they were not the eternal wages of sin. The eternal wages of every sin is death. But even in eternal judgment there will be degrees of punishment. Um, But that's a subject for a later class. We'll get into that another time. In this connection, Louis Burkhoff observes that sins committed on purpose with full consciousness of the evil involved and with deliberation are greater and more culpable than sins resulting from ignorance from an erroneous conception of things, or from weakness of character. Nevertheless, we must remember that the latter are also real sins and make one truly guilty in the sight of God. So keep that in mind then, as, especially as we look at this first category. And what we're going to do here is look at various terms dealing with types of sin or categories of sin. and um, looking at some examples of each. The Bible uses many terms to denote sin. And of the terms that we'll be looking at, some emphasize the causes of sin, some emphasize the character of sin, and others emphasize the consequences of sin. So first, terms emphasizing the causes of sin. Of sin. And this first category, in this category, the, the terms we want to look at first deal with the issue of ignorance. Now, one New Testament word stressing the cause of sin is the Greek word hagnoia, which is, um, comes from the, the word gnosko, which means to know. Um, but it has the alpha privative, so it means to lack knowledge or to be without knowledge. Um, and the verb is agnoeo, which means to be ignorant. And this word is used to translate the Hebrew words uh, shagah or shagag, 
which basically mean to err. So these are the fundamental words related to the idea of sin as ignorance. Um, so let's see how these words are used. <clears throat> Sometimes um, agnoeo is used uh, where it indicates innocent ignorance. For example, in Romans 1, verse 13. And here he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, and that's the, that's the word there, and that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Also in Galatians 1.22, he says, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So here we see the term agnaeo not uh, carrying any culpability or any, any type of sin there. It's just a basic ignorance, a basic unawareness. But in other cases, um, there's a clear culpability involved in the ignorance uh, for instance, in Ephesians 4.18. And here, Paul, speaking of the Gentiles, says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so this ignorance is due to hardness of heart because of their sin and rebellion against God. <clears throat> Also in Acts 3.17 where Peter spoke to the crowd and told them that they had disowned the Holy and Righteous One and had put to death the author of life. He goes on to say in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as, also, as did also your rulers. Now the ignorance here was not innocent, obviously. They had all they needed to know the truth. And uh, we see that in the next verse. Listen to what Peter says here. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. So those who Peter was speaking to, were culpable for not knowing what they ought to have known and for acting contrary to how they should have acted. Peter's call for them to repent shows their responsibility. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul refers to his own sins as a blasphemer and as a persecutor and as a violent aggressor. He says, these were done in ignorance. And for these sins he was shown mercy. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. In 1 Peter 1.14, Peter refers to the believer's former ignorance when they were disobedient and unholy in their passions. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And uh, let's look at Hebrews 9, 7 as well. 
it says here, <clears throat> speaking of the, the inner sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies, says, into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So this is a related word, uh, agno, agnoema, and is translated in the NASB as ignorance. The fact that the priests had to offer sacrifices for them shows that the people were culpable for these sins of ignorance. Lord Erickson says that this was willful ignorance. The people could have known the right course to follow, but chose not to know it. So there is a willful and a culpable ignorance. Now let's uh, look at the terms dealing with sin as error. References to uh, sin as error or are more common. Uh, these refer to the human tendency to go astray or to make mistakes. And in the Old Testament, uh, as we said, the, the, the terms shagah and shagag uh, have this meaning. Shagah is used both literally and figuratively. Literally, it's used of sheep that stray from the flock and of drunken persons stumbling and reeling around. We see this in Ezekiel 34, 6, with regard to the sheep. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And then Isaiah 28, 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. Uh, the verb generally refers to an error of moral, uh, an error in moral conduct, and indicates that the person committing the error is liable for his action. And uh, this is clearly seen with Saul in 1 Samuel 26, 21. It says, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. The uh, New American Standard reads, I have committed a serious error. Two other passages which indicate culpability in error are Psalm 119.67 and Ecclesiastes 5.10. And I'd like to ask somebody to read that for me. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Ecclesiastes 10.5 There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Okay, so, <clears throat> again, um, we see uh, this going astray as a result of uh, 
disobedience of resulted in the first case negligence of keeping the word. Um, so culpability uh, is is implicit there. <clears throat> in several cases in ritualistic passages, this uh, word refers to when the law of the Lord has been unwittingly broken through ignorance or a mistaken judgment. And uh, this is seen in Leviticus 4, verses 2 and 3, where it reads, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Uh, there are several others in Leviticus stating essentially the same thing for different groups of people. Leviticus 4.22-24 to and 27-28 to um, and also in Numbers 15.22-29 to and in all of these passages a sin offering is required for these errors. Uh, in another case, in Leviticus 22:14, 14, um, there's a case of someone mistakenly eating, eating food that only priests were to eat. And it says there, And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the whole thing to the priest. So the culpability is seen in that restitution was required and that a fine was charged. The offender should have been more careful. <clears throat> the most common Hebrew word used to denote error, error is ta'ah. And this occurs around 50 times in the Old Testament and means to err or to wander about it's it's similar to some of what we've just seen. It's also used of one who's intoxicated in the same verse we read before in Isaiah twenty-eight seven. Um, and this time, uh, it's the word translated here stagger. They also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. And in the next line, they stagger with strong drink. So um, it's very closely tied to to the other uh, shagah. Isaiah also speaks of those who err or go astray in spirit in Isaiah 29, 24. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. This verse is speaking of those who are brought to repentance and this term refers to deliberate rather than accidental erring. In the New Testament... The uh, term most frequently used uh, for sin as error is planomai, uh, which is uh, the passive form of planao. And I stress that it's passive because the word emphasizes the cause of one's going astray, namely being deceived. Uh, but this is also seen to be an avoidable and therefore a culpable error, as the following verses indicate. In Mark 13, 
5 and 6 says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. The responsibility is on those hearing. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Also, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality. And one more in Galatians 6-7, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And uh, the same ideas seen in those other verses listed there. Um, There can be various sources of being led astray. And uh, they include evil spirits, um, as we see in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later, latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And also 1 John 4.6 We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. But by this, we know that the spirit, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And also in Revelation 12, 9, we see that this is uh, the very nature of, of Satan. He says in the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So all of these are cases of evil spirits being a cause of leading people astray. But there are other causes such as other people who can be a source of this kind of deception. Ephesians 4.14 So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And also 2 Timothy 3.13 While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. But not only evil spirits and other people, but we ourselves can be instruments in our own deception, as we see in First uh, John 1.8, for an example. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Again, in all these cases, regardless of the source, those who fall into error know or ought to know that they're being led astray. Jesus referred to sinners in need of repentance as straying like sheep um, and as those who need to be searched out and brought home. And in Mark 12, 24-27, he condemned the Sadducees for their error in not knowing the scripture or the power of God. It says, Jesus said to them, it is not 
is it not, is this not, excuse me, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And that's the same term there. Now in Romans 1.27, Paul describes homosexual sin as a sin against nature and uh, calls it an error for which those who practice it are justly judged. He says, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then also in Titus 3.3, Paul describes life without Christ as foolish, disobedient, and deceived or led astray. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In uh, Hebrews 3.10, the Israelites in the wilderness are characterized as going astray in their hearts. And in Hebrews 5.2-3, the sins of the ignorant and wayward required sacrifices to be offered for their sins. Uh, Hebrews 3.10, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And in Hebrews 5, speaking of the uh, human priests, he says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So we see that in both the Old and the New Testaments, uh, that that both recognize various errors as sin. In most cases, what the Bible calls error simply should not have occurred. The person should have known better and was responsible to be on his guard, to inform himself, to not be led astray. And as we've said, though these sins are in one sense less heinous, than those of a more deliberate and rebellious type. They are still sins, and the individual is still responsible for them, and there is still a penalty attached to them. I just want to real quickly look at this last category of inattention. Um, The Greek word here is parakoe. Um, In classical Greek, prior to... uh, the New Testament times, it had the meaning to hear amiss or incorrectly. But by the time of the New Testament, it came also to refer to disobedience that came as a result of inattention. Uh, So not just hearing incorrectly, but being inattentive 
and because of this being disobedience. In several places in the New Testament, it is translated disobedience, such as Romans 5.19, where Paul refers to Adam's sin as parakoe. It says there, For as by one man's disobedience, and that's the word, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Also in 1 Corinthians 10.6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The clearest case where it means disobedience resulting from inattention is in Hebrews 2, verses 2 and 3, where it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. And in light of this, uh, we are exhorted then in the prior verse to pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, as it says, lest we drift away. A related verb, uh, parakouo, means to refuse to listen. And uh, that is used in Matthew 18, 17. This is the last thing we'll look at here. Um, This is in the text dealing with with sin uh, between brothers and... uh, church discipline here, and it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. So the consequence of refusing to listen in this case is uh, very severe, being put out of the church, being considered an unbeliever. So the sin of uh, parakoe is either failure to listen and heed when God is speaking or disobedience coming from the failure to hear aright. So these terms that we've looked at um, are all related in some way to uh, causes of actual sin. Um, In most cases they indicate culpability And whether it's ignorance, error, or inattention, these causes themselves flow from a corruption of nature and they are themselves therefore sin and they make those who practice them responsible for them uh, before God. So that that covers what we have for today. Um, Next week... We'll look at uh, terms primarily dealing with the character of sin, and uh, we'll see examples of those as well as some dealing with the consequences of sin. Uh, I'd ask if there are any questions, but we don't have time. (laughs) So, anyway, thanks for your attention, hopefully. Hopefully none of you were sinning by inattention. (laughs) Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll give us ears to hear. Father, that you'll give us 
minds to comprehend, um, hearts that will love your word and wills that will drive us to walk in obedience to your word, Father, that we can know the blessing of living in, in light of your word and the power of your spirit and to your glory. We pray that you'll enable us in this today, uh, Father, as we go in to worship um, this afternoon, Father, as we uh, go about our time of, with one another in fellowship or whatever is before us, and Father, throughout our weeks, um, let your light, your word be a light to our path, and uh, may we walk steadfastly therein. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.